Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we were in Exodus 34 this morning, looking at all the different aspects to that particular chapter. Uh, I really actually didn't look at all the <laughs> aspects of that chapter, because there's a lot more than we could get into even two hours if I just concentrated on it. Because there's so many things that overlap, and there's so many things that could use explaining. I don't necessarily mean that they need explaining, but they often need explaining because people don't really understand uh, what the biblical text is all about. And it's amazing the number of people that uh, are theoretically in the business of explaining what the biblical text is all about, and uh, they haven't got a clue. Oh, what they're talking about. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not good people. They just don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what the text really contains. And, of course, like I said, I've been going along with uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, symposium and listen to the different things they have to say. And they come up with some remarkably accurate observations. But a remarkably accurate observation doesn't mean they get the entire picture. And it's like, you know, you're calculating, you know, I, I've, I've gone to sea in small boats and sailboats. I mean, that was one of the first things I ever wrote was uh, two hours before the mass, which was my experience with a dentist going out to sea in a sailboat and uh, almost crashed a sailboat because I didn't know, you know, I was getting the picture. I'd never been sailing and I was getting the picture of how it all works by the time I survived those two hours, I, I had a much clearer understanding of seamanship and how a sailboat works, but I still had a lot to learn, and I learned that down in Florida. I had been in, in California, out now Marina del Rey is where we had uh, set sail from. Uh, you know, I learned a lot on how, no idea how a sailboat works, and so you had to pick up the vocabulary and all that stuff. I had actually made a sailboat, uh, when I was much younger, uh, living in San Francisco, and I I made it so it would go out and tack and come back to the shore. You'd take them to these little ponds in San Francisco, and you would take the sailboat out, and you'd let it go, and it'd start going across the lake, and then it would go so far, and then all of a sudden it would tack, and it would come back. And of course, I have to... It doesn't come back exactly where I was, but... Uh, and only, you know, I, I spent weeks making the sailboat and uh, carving it and, you know, making it out of balsa wood and all this kind of stuff and the stringing the canvas and and uh, I don't even know whatever happened to it, but I thought it was phenomenal. I, when I picture it, you know, it's, it's really a single-masted schooner with a twin centerboard keel and uh, all these kinds of things, but... Uh, uh, I, I, w- I wasn't actually sailing, <laughs> but just following the instructions. But actually, when you're on the water, uh, it's a completely different thing. It's You're not just in your imagination. You actually have to avoid the rocks. <laughs> 
and you you have to make the turn. No giant is going to reach down when you're headed towards the rocks and pick your boat up. <laughs> so you're actually going to hit the rocks. And so, you know, and I was just too enthusiastic and I pulled the line too quickly. And it made it so they were very difficult in turning about. And they, fortunately, they were able to turn about before they crashed into the rocks. But I threw their timing off because they told me and I did it instantly. (laughs) They thought I would do it in just another, you know, 30 seconds or so. Now, pull that jib. And maybe he was going to say, when I give you this signal... Should have said, when I give you the signal, pull the jib. Uh, but uh, anyway, we survived. But this is kind of like going and reading the Bible. And you get bits and pieces of it, great. But if you if you don't navigate, you know, like learning navigation, you know, sequence and co-sequence and how to figure navigating across currents and all that stuff, I've done that too. And uh, as a matter of fact, when my kids were uh, homeschooling, that was one of the things I did was created a whole assignment, how they had to navigate from somewhere off the coast of uh, British Columbia down to Oregon and know when to come into shore with their sailboat. And and they would have to calculate the currents and how fast they were going when the wind was blowing. So, I mean, the wind is blowing at a certain speed for a while, and this gives you a certain speed uh, out there at sea. And you have to calculate that speed, you know, with like throwing a float in at the beginning of the boat and knowing when you get to the end of the line. And then you pull it up again and do it again, and you keep calculating, and eventually you get a, a random or a a mean calculation of your speed. Now you have to add that in. You know you have to go 600 miles. So how many miles are you covering every hour? So you have to constantly do this because the wind changes. And okay, we had two hours of wind at this speed and an hour of the wind at that speed. And we're tacking in this direction. So how fast are you going? Then you have to add in... The speed of the current. Is the current with you? Is it against you? Is it taking you out to sea? And then, of course, you might have to calculate where you're at at a given time by triangulating on obstacles in, uh, you know, at, on the shore. And now, nowadays, you know, they just, they just triangulate with a satellite and it tells them exactly where they are. <laughs> but if the satellite goes out, They'd be lost. They wouldn't know. And, of course, it was an assignment for my kids. So, I don't know that any of them got the actual figures correct. We we created artificial wind speed and we put it in there. And they did all the math. But they were seeing how complicated it was to navigate through a problem. We had to take so many things into consideration. And if you got one thing wrong... You're not going to end up in the right place. You know, you're going to sail over the edge of the earth or some disastrous thing is going to take place. Well, of course, this is what's happened with modern Christendom, modern Judaism, modern Muslims. They've altered certain things in their dogmas from what Moses and Jesus were actually saying. And 
there are certain things that seem to be almost universally uh, missed. And there are other things that, you know, somebody gets a little bit of this and gets a little bit of that. And, and, and they actually put it all together and they create what they call the Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, or ethos, maybe. <laughs> that has been the foundation of Western civilization. Well, uh, maybe. Uh, there is some sort of echo in both the story of Moses and the story of Jesus Christ. Both of them have the Ten Commandments, although there's a huge branch of Christianity that uh, suggests that, oh, you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. You're saved by the blood. But, you know, I mean, right there in the New Testament, it says you're going to be judged by your works. And, and you know, what does that mean? If you're not going to be judged by your works, <laughs> you're not going to be judged by the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, he did his part with the blood of Jesus Christ. But you're not bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ if you're not doing the will of the Father. Christ is very clear that you have to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father includes what is the principles of those Ten Commandments, those Ten Statements, which is telling you how it works. And, you know, as I've explained before, the wrath of God is the consequences of the law of God as he has put it into place. And the law of God is the law of nature, and the law of nature, because God is the God of nature, and the law of nature is right reason, and right reason is divine will, and divine will is the will of God. So if you're not doing things according to right reason, not... When I say right reason, I'm not talking about your logical reason. I'm talking about right reason. I mean, you can have your logical reason and it may conform to right reason. But if you've got something wrong in your calculations of what right reason is, you could be way off course. And the consequences remain. You, you, you're not going to be immune to the consequences of being off course. And so, and that is what sin is. Missing the mark. It's being off course. It's not an event. It's not like, oh, well, I committed adultery and, uh, you know, I swore three times. And, you know, you put them all in kind of a numerical order and you say, well, this is what I did. And so those are my sins. No, your sin is that you missed the mark. The evidence of sin is that you committed adultery or you, you engaged in covetous practices or... Or you're cussing and swearing and you're angry and you're judging and you're... All those things are evidence of the fact that you missed the mark. Because if you miss the mark, those are the things you're going to do. Uh, virtue is the positive... The virtue of God is the positive elements of God's character. It is the name of God. That's what virtue is, the name of God. He is merciful. We went over that this morning. He is long-suffering. You know, he is, you know, compassionate. And he is all these things. And then immediately he goes in and he says that I'm going to judge the people. Not only the people that are doing these things wrong, but for several generations, they're going to be judged. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought you were merciful. <laughs> yeah, you should have been merciful. <laughs> no, he is merciful because 
It's not mercy to let you get away with missing the mark. You have to pay the consequences of missing the mark. That's what gets you on course. You know, doctor, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Stop doing that. (laughs) Well, that's the joke anyway. But the reality is, is you, you have to do what is right in order to receive the wages of righteousness. If you're doing what is wrong, you're automatically going to receive the wages of unrighteousness. Now, you, people have heard me talk about the unrighteous mammon and the righteous mammon. And the righteous mammon is the Corbin of Christ. That's where you provide for a social welfare net for the people through charity and love. That is the righteous mammon. And most of the treasury of the righteous mammon is in the pockets of the individual people. Which is why the golden calf was a sin of idolatry. It wasn't because they made a golden calf. And, And Jonathan in episode 13 points that out. It was because they worshipped it. But then what do they mean worship it? See, so these are the little definitions of these words start taking you off course. Now we know that worship literally sometimes means bow down. To, to lay yourself down, to, to bend over or to even serve because both of those aspects are incorporated in the definition of the word worship. When you bow down, you're bowing to the will of God. And if you just bow down, you're not doing the will of God. You're not really worshiping. What what does Jesus say in the parable of the two sons? The one said, yes, Father, I will go do it. And the other one said, no, Father, I'm not going to do it. And so which one is obeying the Father? Which one is bowing to the will of the Father? Which one is worshiping the Father? The one that said he was going to do it and bowed to the will of the Father? Or the one that said he wasn't going to do it and disregarded the will of the Father? Well, when the story continues on, we discover that the one who said he was going to do it did not do it. (laughs) And the one who said he wasn't going to do it had a change of heart and he went and did it. So which one worshipped the Father now? It's the one who did it. So, if you go to church and you say, Lord, Lord, I love you and I praise you and all this, but you're not doing the will of the Father, you're not worshiping Christ. He who does the will of my Father. Not, he who says he's going to do the will of my Father. There's a whole, whole statements by Jesus. Not those who say, but those who do. And we got whole churches going out there saying, you don't have to do. You just have to confess that you believe in Jesus. And you're automatically saved. That's not what he said, but that's what their doctrine says because they've removed part of the equation that Jesus gave us. Part of the pattern. They're ignoring. There's several of them. You know, you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other in the provision of pure religion. You're not supposed to do that. So back to... Uh, Exodus 34. And uh, you, you've got uh, you got Aaron 
coming along, making the golden calf. They want a, they want a golden calf. And uh, they, they make us something that will bind us together. A God that we can follow and obey because Moses isn't here and we're afraid everybody's going to scatter. We're not going to be together. And we need to be together. I mean, according to Ben Shapiro, he was estimating the number at that particular time. And there's a number of different estimates, but he's a pretty educated guy. And so he came up with a number. And I'm okay with that number. But if you come up with a different number, I'm okay with that too. Because I don't think the number really matters. But he says there was like 600,000 Israelites there at that particular time. Now, if there's 600,000 Israelites there, and there's cows and sheep and, you know, goats and donkeys. and I mean, they're moving all this stuff somehow. And they're traveling about. Although, you know, they got to stay where the water flowed, you know, for a period of time. But that's a lot of folks. That's a lot of people. Now, he made rules up right away that you had to be able to dig your latrines and all this kind of stuff. So that sanitation was a problem with 600,000 people. Explaining something to 600,000 people is not going to be easy. I mean, they didn't have any megaphones. They didn't have, you know, uh, iPods, uh, you know, or iPads or any of those things where, where you can just make a recording and pass it out to everybody. So they have to communicate with 600,000 people. Say it was 60,000 people. Say it was 6,000 people. It's still a huge number to communicate with. Now, it was probably more than 6,000. It could have been 600,000. We know that at the Levite smiting the people, <laughs> they were told to go out and smite the people. And I've explained that. If you, don't, if you think that the Levites actually went out and killed 3,000 people with swords, you missed it. He didn't do that. And even Ben Shapiro points that out. There's, a lot of people are disgruntled or are disappointed in the Old Testament because there's so many times where they say, um, you know, put to death. Put to death. Put to death. I have a whole article you can go look at preparing you for put to death. And I've got a lot more to add to it because it says it a lot. Put to death. But according to even Ben Shapiro, he says that that they don't think it ever happened because in order to have a death penalty, you have to have two witnesses that inform the guy before he committed the crime that he shouldn't commit the crime and the consequences of committing the crime. Then they have to witness two witnesses have to witness him committing the crime. This is according to Ben Shapiro, what he said in episode thirteen, and and then. They have to testify that he committed the crime. And so almost nobody would receive capital punishment. I mean, O.J. Simpson would not have been, uh, he would not have got, he would have been released. He wouldn't have got any capital punishment whatsoever. Because there weren't two witnesses. It's all circumstantial evidence. That nobody told him ahead of time that if you do this, you know, I didn't even know about that. That's what Ben Shapiro was saying. But I know there wasn't two witnesses. We know there was. It's circumstantial evidence. And it's bizarre circumstantial evidence. 
And you can say, well, I'm convinced. Well, that's fine that you're convinced. Maybe, you know, maybe you're convinced about all kinds of things that just ain't so. Maybe you're gullible. <laughs> the fact is, is there aren't two eyewitnesses to the crime. So you can't, if you, even if you convict him, you cannot execute him according to this horrible Judaic law of put to death, put to death, put to death. And the reality, they're not even supposed to, they're not, they're not, God is not giving you a license to go around and kill people. Because you think they did it. Even if you had two witnesses. Look, one of those witnesses could be lying. Maybe both of them are lying. Maybe they killed the guy and they're just blaming it on him. And they're, they're lying. And so now you go out and execute him. You executed the innocent. Because you were gullible. You believed the two witnesses. So, no. No, it's not put to death. It's what they did with those who would not consecrate themselves to the way that Moses was trying to show the people. So let's roll back now to that golden calf. What? After they created the golden calf, they say in there that Aaron made the people naked. So how did he make the people naked? Did he, did he go in there and tell them to strip off all their clothes? No. What did he tell them to strip off? The gold that would have been the inheritance to take care of the widow if they died and their children who would be orphans if they died. That's They have gold to, and that's what they did in those days. They wanted to provide for their wife and their child in case something happened. They killed in war. They, they fall over, have a heart attack or whatever. They, they say, Here's some gold. This will keep you safe and you can make decisions about it. So he passes some of the gold down to his kids. Because that's portable wealth. That's that's easily carried. You can carry a lot of wealth in a very small amount of space. But Aaron said, take that off of your wives and your children and we will put them in this golden calf. He was stripping them of their right to choose what to do with that gold. You know, it was no longer in their hands. Now it's going to be in a common purse of gold. And it's supposedly there to take care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society. But now it's in a common purse. Somebody is going to have the right to decide how to distribute the value that is in that golden statue. Because that's what they did in the city states when they had golden statues. They would they would have a chest full of gold, you know, and gold coins and everything for immediate expenses. But they, you know, in time of war, sometimes that ran out and they actually sawed off part of the golden statues and melted it down, made coins, and then bought what they needed. That's that's how it worked. And now I I admit, okay, a lot of these guys don't know that. At least they haven't said anything about it yet. And you know, if you look that up, you won't find many people tell you about it. But I was asking that question when I was 13 years old. I was probably asking it before that. But I know I was asking it when I was 13, because that's when I was at St. Joseph College in California. And I was asking my theological professors, what were they doing in these temples? What, what, why did they have golden statues? 
Well, they worshipped him. They worshipped well, You mean like, you know, like we see in the movies? <laughs> it didn't make any sense. I, I mean, I was a people person, watching people anyway. I didn't need people, but I, I found them absolutely fascinating. And I thought, that is, a, you know, when you're out in the wilderness, I had spent a lot of times in the wilderness, even by then. And a lot of time alone in the wilderness. And, you know, when things get rough, you're not nearly as superstitious. Maybe in the middle of the night you'll be a little superstitious. But, you know, if you hear the animals growling in the dark, <laughs> you're looking for a sharp stick or your knife or a gun. Uh, because that's practical. That that actually might stop something. <laughs> uh, I wasn't the cowardly lion type who sits there and says, I do believe in spooks, I do believe in spooks. No, it has to be, it's it's a real world. They they go hungry if they don't get it done. They They freeze if they don't get it done. The elements are unforgiving, cause and effect. So that it was practical. Everything that Abraham was doing, everything that Moses was telling the people, it's practical. So there has to be a practical purpose. So when the people said they wanted to have this golden statue, that something to be the ruling judge to keep everybody together, Abraham was not. Excuse me. Aaron was right. This is going to keep the people together. It, it's going to work. He knows it worked in a lot of other places. He knows why they make these golden statues. That it keeps the people loyal. Because that it's not so easy to run off. He knows that. And he thinks that's working. And they want something. And he wants to please them. Why does Aaron want to please them so much? They have the debate as to whether it's a populist uh, leader. Aaron wants to be, they're thinking of him as a populist leader. What does that mean? What, why are they saying that? Actually, this is, this is a great danger for the position of the priesthood. As, uh, if you know the actual duties of the priesthood, that they may want to become a populist leader. And so, you know, Moses incorporates a whole system in there to prevent that from happening. To put a check and balance on that. And I doubt anybody is going to get it in this symposium. But it's the wave offering. The wave offering is there to create checks and balances in the society so that Aaron doesn't become a populist leader who just does the will of the people. So, so he can't come up and say, well, the people made me do it. You know, and his excuse about Moses uh, not being there, that was kind of feeble too. He knows it was. But anyway, we'll talk, we have talked about that. We'll talk about that more in other places. But what I really want to talk about is milk and meat. Because there's at least three places I can think of right offhand where they talk about uh, seeding a kid in its mother's milk. I mean, Exodus 23, 19, I remember. Um, also, uh, well, Exodus 34, 26, which we just covered this morning. And there's another place where they talk about it later on. Uh, it's also in the 
I believe it's in the Torah. I can't remember where it is right now. <laughs> but uh, it's actually in an interesting, unique place. But I actually, I have a page already where I've been putting down the notes. It's probably not completed yet. But all these ideas are overlapping. When you start getting all the pieces of the puzzle together in in the right place, the picture starts to come into vision. And the picture that you need to know is what does a voluntary society operating according to the perfect law of liberty do in order to practically function in a world of chaos? How, how does that work? Now, you, you tell most people that's what we need to do, and they're going to say, well, that can never happen. That's crazy. And what I'm talking about is what the Romans used to refer to as libera res publica, free from things public. You see, when they put all their gold, that was theirs. It was a part of the wealth of their family, and they put it in the statue. They were no longer whole. They were now naked of the power to decide what to do with that gold. They they couldn't decide what to do. They had been stripped of that ability to make a decision. Somebody else was going to make that decision for them. And it wasn't going to be them. They were stripped of the authority over that gold. They were now naked without that authority. Now, they still had authority about their silver and still had authority about their maybe their sheep and their, you know, their cattle and, you know, all that stuff. But that little bit of authority over the inheritable wealth of their family wasn't in their hands anymore. They'd been stripped of that. They were now naked of that authority. And we have a whole article. You go look up naked. Why was Adam and Eve naked? They, there was authority Adam and Eve did not have. And one of those authorities is they did not have the right to decide what was good and evil. They had a way of discovering what was good and evil. And we call that the tree of life. And that tree of life was a source of revelation to them so they would know what was good and evil. But at the aid of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they could no longer eat of the tree of life. It's one or the other. And that's a very important concept, which takes us back to what we were talking about a minute ago, the unrighteous mammon and the righteous mammon. The righteous mammon is the Corbin of Christ, where you take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And the bulk of the treasury of that kingdom is in the pockets of the individual people. Which is where Moses told them to keep their gold. Is in their own purse. And where Proverbs tells you not to have one purse. If if sinners entice thee and say let's all have one purse. Don't go that way. Proverbs tells you that. Don't go that way. It runs towards evil. It runs towards death. But of course back in 1913. You guys all thought that was a good idea. Well, you didn't all think that. As a matter of fact, most of you weren't around in 1913. <laughs> I would uh, I would suspect that none of you were around. But still, there's consequences for those choices back then that people made in 1913. And of course, they didn't they didn't confiscate everybody's gold. You didn't have to break off your earrings or anything. But 
they set up a system whereby you could end up cashing your gold into the street. Now, I throw that word out there, street. Maybe we'll get to studying that in this particular episode. There's more than one word for street. (laughs) And that word for street, you'd be surprised what it is. It means something other than street. And probably the best place to look at that is when we look at wave offering. Because one of the words that talks about the wave offering is also, in other places, translated street. (laughs) And, of course, in Revelation it says you'll cast your gold and silver into the streets. But what what they're actually, of course, that's another language. That's Greek, uh, where they say that. But the original idea of the Greek text may have been originally coming out of the Hebrew language. We, we don't have any copy of the original manuscript of Revelation, but there's no reason to believe that it wasn't, it was probably certain written by somebody who thought Hebrew, or Aramaic at least, which is very similar. And so, that may be there because, that Greek word for street may be there because of the, of this other word that is sometimes translated Street. And they give it a different strong number when they translate it street, but the letters actually can mean, the letters actually have like three, four different strong numbers applied to them. And I've already done some work putting that together, but that's not the topic right now. But once you start understanding the meaning of these words, then, and what, what they're trying to impart to you, then a lot of these things that seem like they're just kind of stuck in there, and theologies can come along and, and doctrines can come along and say, well, this is what this means, this is what this means. And you accept that, and then now it's you, you've actually created a wall, which is another word, I think, that actually could be translated street. A wall, so you can't get to the actual meaning because you have, you misunderstood this word. And so, that in verse 15 it says, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice. Now that, you know, I I have said many times, the word adultery in the Bible, most of the time when they mention the word adultery in the Bible, They're not talking about sexual adultery. They're talking about intercourse, but intercourse isn't always talking about sexual intercourse. It's called, it's talking about a conversation, maybe. And then you go look up our word, the word conversation at preparing you and you find out conversation doesn't mean just talking to each other. It's interacting. So what is happening is that if you make a covenant with them in the lands where you go, your kids and you may go whoring after their gods, sacrificing to their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice. And he even tells you in, in the same chapter, up there in verse 12, that this can become a snare. And of course, David repeats that. What should have been for your welfare, which is what that covenant they're talking about, that whoring is desiring the benefits of the men who exercise authority. 
And those benefits are provided because the people sacrifice to that system. Just like the Israelites took the gold off and they sacrificed it to the making the golden calf. Which just came out. <laughs> According to Aaron. Just, you know, they, they put it all in there and this golden calf just came out. Well, no, it didn't, you know. Somebody brought it forth out of there. But the point is, is that, that they're, you know, what they had a feast right afterwards. They had a feast to Yahweh, the Lord, next to the golden calf. The golden calf wasn't a god to replace the god that they called Yahweh. It wasn't there to replace him. It was there to bind the people. But in order to bind the people, they had to have them strip off their gold and put it into there to create this bond. You start seeing how this all fits together? But God doesn't want you bound that way. He has another method to have you bound there in the wilderness. And it is part of the way of God. And it is the way of love. Because we know in the character of God, He is merciful. I said that earlier in the name issue. That He is merciful. Are you merciful? Do you have the name of God written in your heart? See, you have to hear the cries of your neighbor. And then turn that. You say, well, I heard the cries of my neighbor and I I wished him well. (laughs) No, you have to actually actively help your neighbor. I had a, a guy just got an email. The guy's evidently having some sort of health problem. He's lost his job. Um, He's got some sort of liver problem, and he's lost 20 pounds. He doesn't have any energy. He can't work, and he wants help. And he is really big. I've known this guy for years. I mean, not, not we don't sit down. I don't think I've ever physically met him, but he's done a lot of writing, and I've done a lot of writing, and a lot of the writings overlap. But what he doesn't have is a network of people who care about one another. He just doesn't like the system of the world. And he thinks they're all usurpers. And he doesn't want to be a part of their system. But he doesn't want to be a part of God's system either. He didn't consecrate himself to the system of God. Where you create a society in the midst of the chaos of the world that operates by faith, hope, and charity. And so now he he wants to know what he can do. And uh, he wants people to pray for him. Well, if you were in a network, they could, you know, maybe they could find out what the problem is. I'm not even sure where he lives, somewhere in the Midwest. I've just seen his writings over the years, and, and he's on my Facebook, I think is where I heard it, or maybe he sent an email. But I don't know what I can do for him. We would like to do for a lot of people. But, you know, I'm probably poorer than he is in some ways. But, uh, uh, you, you, this is why you have to, if you're going to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you have to be creating a social welfare system that strengthens the poor. And what does not strengthen the poor is the systems that operate by force. He doesn't like the systems that operate by force, but he didn't do anything to create the systems that operate by love, which would heal. 
But what Abraham, oh not Abraham again, I said it. What Aaron was doing was the first step in creating a system, a one-purse system that operates by force. Because he was taking some of the choice away from the people to bind them together and create a loyalty where now choices that they had before are now not in their hands anymore. They're in that one purse, that golden statue. And that that's destructive to the purposes of God and, and the way of God. It's going to sever you from part of the system that God is setting up. So how is that doing that? And what of this milk thing that I talked about? Okay. Well, in verse 26, he's talking about how they have to bring sacrifice, you know, to the temple, to the altar, you know, and uh, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, which is with cruelty. And, and he gives all these other rules up there, but it's all about the sacrifice, which is the social safety net, you know, the wheat harvest and all these things that are bringing uh, funds and materials to the, the temple or through the ministers of the temple on all the altars of stone. See, the altars of stone, yeah, they built a single altar of unhewn stone, and we'll talk about other altars. They built the bird offering altar out of wood. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Are they burning up sheep on the bird offering altar? And it's made out of wood? Yeah, it's covered with brass. But the, it's wood. Acacia wood. Or uh, shittim, I think, is what they, they make it out of, which is maybe the same kind of wood. But they're talking about all these sacrifices and the things that you have to give, willing, free offering, willing to give these offerings. But everybody is to come and do this. And they're not to come empty-handed. Everybody's supposed to give their fair share. But there's no police force to make sure you're giving your fair share. Which is... You know, it was interesting. I noticed during the show that the show is April 15th of this year. <laughs> and I'm talking about the sacrifice that you make to the temple to provide your society with social welfare for the needy. So how you can, you know, can, do we have a place where we could take in this guy who's having some problem? Do we have people that could provide alternative to help that might save him? Uh, but I can tell you this, that the love, uh, a system operating by love can save a lot more people than a system operating by greed. I, I, I just know that that will take place. If your system is operating by greed and pride and arrogance, you're probably going to kill as many people as you save. Maybe you're going to kill more. It looks like you're going to kill more with data that I just received this week from somebody in government. Which is not the topic of today. But uh, in 26 it says, The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring unto the house of the Lord thy God. The first fruits. 
is going to go to the house of the Lord. Now, does that all mean that it all has to be shipped all the way across the country to come to the temple, the tabernacle? But the house of the Lord is everywhere that the ministers who belong to the Lord live. The Levites will belong to God. They are the bricks and mortar of the house of God. The the living stones of the house of God. They are the living stones of the altar of God. And wherever they are, that's the house of the Lord. So you don't have to take your stuff all, where's the tabernacle this year? We're going to go, oh, we got to go way up to, uh, you know, this area up there with the Benjamites, because that's where it's at. So we got to take all this stuff up there. And then we're going to have to redistribute it all the way back down here if there's a need. Uh, no. It doesn't work that way. In every house, at every village, there was, there were, actually at the time of Christ in every village, there was an Essene house. But there should be, in every village, a Levite house. And some of those Essenes were probably Levites. Because the Essenes, the Essenes were operating according to a way. They weren't a bloodline. And they were around for hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came. But they had a decidedly different philosophy. Now, I don't want you to become Essenes. I want you to find out what God is really talking about. But right in the midst of that verse 26, where he's talking about bringing these offerings... That is supercharging the social welfare system of the nation. So that there's no homeless, there's no people starving in the streets, there's enough shared with everybody all the time. It's constantly flowing like blood in your body. But it's free will flowing. You're not supposed to have blood in your sacrifice, which means your sacrifices, and you can't have leaven in your sacrifices, which means it has to be entirely given up. You see, you're right. Your corporeal and incorporeal hereditaments of personality are in the blood. That that's the seat of the soul is in the blood. When your blood stops, your kids inherit whatever you have. They go through your pockets and they get whatever you have left. But that that's because you don't own it anymore. You're dead. You know, your kids own it. And, uh, you, you know, your wife and your family, you, you, it's passed down to the next generation. So, you can't have that blood in it if, if it's a sacrifice unless it's entirely given up. The, the person has to freely and completely to consent to the charity. And you can't do it with cruelty. You can't threaten, well, if you don't give, you know, if you don't give 10% of what you earn to the church, we may not let you have communion. We may not let, you know, you can't be coercing, you can't be twisting the arms of the people. You certainly can't be threatening to arrest them and put them in jail and take away all their property if they don't pay property tax. That That is so ungodly. That is so evil. That is so covetous that I shouldn't even have to explain it. But there's all kinds of people out there that think that they're keeping the Ten Commandments and they're constantly putting their neighbor under threat of losing his house if he doesn't pay property tax so that they can have free education. That's a departure from the ways of Christ. 
That's a departure from the ways of God. That's a departure from the ways of Moses. I mean, I can show you over and over again. Property tax is a use tax. Use tax is usury. And we'll get into that. And we have already. But we'll get into it again as we go through. Because it's, we'll see it in, in the rules that Moses is laying down. And we'll begin to understand what that's all about. But right in the midst of saying that you can't have blood, you can't have cruelty in the collection of my sacrifice. It has to be free will sacrifices or it is an abomination. All of a sudden, verse 26, they're talking about, again, the first fruit sacrifice, which is to supercharge the house of the Lord so that it has plenty of funds and resources to take care of the needy of society. Because the ministers are actually practicing pure religion. They're visiting the widows and orphans and needy of their society. And they're not dependent upon the benefaction of the world. They're not taking the blood of their neighbor. They're not forcing their neighbor to contribute. They're doing it all with charity. This is what made America great. When we did that, America was getting great. And greater and greater and greater. Everybody wasn't doing that. But there was enough of it here that America prospered beyond imagination. But the very next part of that same verse, it says, Thou shalt not see boil a kid in his mother's milk. What is he talking about? They put it to the food laws. It has nothing to do with food laws. Absolutely nothing to do with food laws. You can still have your cheeseburger. (laughs) You can still have sour cream on your steak. You know, it's okay if your fork, meat fork touches, you know, your yogurt fork, if you, or your yogurt spoon or whatever it is. (laughs) It's okay. Because it doesn't have anything to do with the food law. And the other places, I can show you where the other places where this shows up, it doesn't have anything to do with the food laws. Okay. So what does it have to do with? Well, it has to do with something else that Jordan Peterson was talking about in their, their Exodus episode 13. Where they actually were talking about Aaron and, and being this populist guy, wanting to be this populist guy. And of course, in my notes, I say, you know, Aaron was the priest. And it is very dangerous for the position of the priest, what the priest is going to do. Then he starts doing stuff to be popular with the people. But he doesn't need to do that. And the priest, though, is an extremely compassionate position because he's going to have to make decisions with those funds that pass up, that are heaved up through the network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because, see, you give to your minister, he gives to his minister, he gives to his minister. What do they don't use? They got to use it up. I mean, they can keep a little bit in reserve, but, you know, this is kind of the principle of the Passover. They got all this meat that they're going to eat on Passover night. They're not supposed to leave any of it for later. They're supposed to make sure that everything gets distributed, everything gets consumed. If it doesn't get consumed, they, they're supposed to burn it up. Now, I'm not making a hard and fast rule on that, but there's a principle expressed in that rule. So, But it keeps passing up. It keeps passing up keeps passing up. You didn't you didn't eat everything that came in, so you give ten percent up. Maybe you decide, well, I'm gonna give fifteen percent up. When you give it up to the next minister, he gets to decide what to do with it. 
And he, he can take it as what came up to him, and so now he can take 10% of that and pass it up. Or he can use it, whatever is necessary. But basically, he can pass it up. It's all free will. No matter, there's no guarantee that he's going to pass up 10%. Whatever he passes up, that has to be acceptable to the next minister. But if he gives it, he gives it entirely. You see, and Jesus talks about this. Moses is going to talk about it too. Because there's no penalty if you don't pass up 10%. No penalty imposed upon you by men. That, you know, somebody might notice, well, he's never passing anything up. And I know he's got plenty. And so... When he needs help, uh, I may not be quite as Johnny on the spot. I, I may help him, but, you know, I don't want to seethe a kid in his mother's milk. What? Well, that's your reasoning? <laughs> well, you'll see it. You'll see it eventually. Hopefully you'll see it eventually. That that is what comes into play. But when you listen to Jesus, he says, well, how much do you owe? Well, I owe 10%, of course. Well, how much can you pay? Well, I can only give you about 5% because we had a lot of problems here and I used most of it up and, you know, things have been rough and uh, and fine, painful. No penalty. You don't get arrested. You don't get a SWAT team. You don't get thrown in jail because this is, this is a free society. You know it's a free society because it takes care of its needy through voluntary offerings. If you don't take care of your needy through voluntary offerings, you are not a free society. If you don't have the right to decide 100% over everything that you produce during a given year, you're not free. That's just it. You're not free. If if you have to give 20% of your labor to the government, you're in the bondage of Egypt. That's, you've returned to the bondage of Egypt. Yeah, is anybody noticing that? <laughs> Besides me. I know some of you out there are noticing it. Now, that's where you're at. Now, what's the solution? You still have to pay your tally of bricks. But you need to glean in the field at night and start hearing the cries of your neighbor and start doing something about it. So anyway, so we got this. We'll, we'll, we'll leave Aaron there sitting as the priest, the populist priest. And that the solution to that is at least the rules concerning the wave offering. And we'll just put a pin in that and we'll come back to that later. But Jordan Peterson, in the course of this conversation, he mentioned some excessive compassion being a problem. And he, he's spoken before about undifferentiating empathy. Too much empathy. Excessive compassion can lead to what they call uh, hyper... Uh, empathy syndrome which is very detrimental to the individual who has it but when he starts talking about uh, the devouring mother that's that's one of the we'll just use that as a, a symbol that we're dealing with and the devouring mother who literally is seething her kid in her own milk of human kindness she just she hovers she she won't let the kid grow up. She does everything for the kid. I mean, I we had a a witch living next door to us for a while. I mean, I didn't say she was a witch. She said she was a witch. She said she was a white witch. 
but she lived next door to us. <laughs> so anyway, she was nursing her son at least till he was five years old. It might have been completely until he was eight years old. I'm not sure. Eventually, a court ordered her to stop nursing. <laughs> and she was, I don't know where they're at today. I might come across them yet. It, that's that's kind of the Siddhartha aspect of my life where somebody I, touches my life for a period of time and then they come back. She's come back into my life several times over the years. But uh, she she's a devouring mother. She is weakening her son to the point where he is absolutely dependent upon. And, and Jordan Peterson talks about this. You know, the, the, this is what the college professors are doing. They're weakening the children. They have to have their safe space. And, you know, you can't trigger them. And everything that disagrees with them is hate speech and all this stuff. Because they're trying to make children of your children because they never had children. <laughs> they have that habit of being this, you know, hyper-empathy syndrome. But for the purposes of weakening the child to make the child subservient because it it gives them a sense of purpose and power because it, it, it's almost always about power. So he talks about it. You can probably Google it and you'll probably find all kinds of things. But So he knows this. He understands the psychology of that. But I haven't seen them say anything about this. Thou shalt not see the boil a kid in his mother's milk. I've seen a lot of explanations about that. But it's about weakening your children. Spoiling your children. Not requiring them to be responsible for what they do. And that's a big thing with Jordan, you know. Clean your room. Start being, he tells a story about somebody who's, you know, like in his 30s or something. Still living at home. Hasn't cleaned his room in a dozen years. And that was part of his, you know, assignment from psychological session with Jordan Peterson that the guy was going to try to clean his room. And so then he comes back next week. Did you did you clean your room? And he says, well, I got the vacuum up there. It's in the doorway. And it's an upright vacuum. So he keeps stepping over it in in the doorway every day. And he never cleaned any of it. And so Jordan Peterson talks about, okay, so I'm going to, Lower our expectations. <laughs> and I don't know what he did, but, you know, clean 10 square feet of it. <laughs> you know, five square feet of it. You know, do something. You know, what's the messiest thing in your room? Clean that up. Get that, you know. It's kind of like, you know, fear of flying. Well, don't, you know, maybe get him to go up and look out a window on a 10-story building. <laughs> you know, and do things where, you know, you have to do it. That's how you overcome that fear. And you may have to do it a little bit at a time so that you don't end up in a catatonic state. But this is this is what the undifferentiated empathy can do is keep you from doing those things. That they, they make your bed. That they they clean up your room. They make your meals. And there's a natural tendency in every mother to, you know, to do that. I mean, they've done that with, you know, my mom raised kids. And so she, and she's a good host. And so if you come over, she wants to do everything for you. And it's just part of her nature. And that that's fine. But, you know, we 
we didn't live in our mother's house. So we, you know, I left home when I was 17. <laughs> so uh, we've been out on our own and we've become somewhat independent. And that's important. But when the mother is, what he's talking about is you want to have charity in your society. The people in charge of the charity in your society. The redistribution of wealth in your society. See, in the kingdom of God, they have a redistribution of wealth. But it's voluntary. Through charity. In socialism, they have redistribution of wealth. But they use force and violence. They're going to have a different outcome. If you're you're going to end up with Sodom and Gomorrah of used force, you're also going to end up with a, a huge citizenry that is weak and unable to ward off the attacks of people who attack them, even in their city state where they have walls. They will still be conquered and taken prisoner. But overnight, the guys that are out there with Abraham are going to muster an army overnight and defeat them in one night because they have a different system. Of social welfare. And this is what they're not seeing in Jordan Peterson's symposium. Way back in the beginning I pointed out that they they think, okay, they had to have slavery. Jonathan said this. They had to have slavery because they didn't have a social safety net. I've heard in previous speeches that were given by Ben Shapiro, I haven't heard him say it yet in this form, but... He said that, well, government is needed for some things like creating a social safety net. No! No, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. That's going to lead to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's going to lead you back in the bondage of Egypt. It's going to set a table of welfare. But that welfare is a snare. It says that in Ben Shapiro's Torah. That, well, at least in, not in the Torah, actually in the Psalms says that in Psalms. David says that in Psalms. So, and, and I'm sure he's got Psalms. And, and Paul quotes David and says the same thing. So, you you have to have a system of charity if you're going to be a free people. It has to be well organized. It has to be well funded. And it has to be manned by people who will not weaken the poor. Which we go way back in the earlier parts of Exodus when he's giving you the so-called laws, the statutes that he's, he's explaining, which are actually judgments. He's saying that when you make these judgments, you don't favor the poor. You don't favor the rich. You're blind to whether they're poor or rich or popular. Which takes us back to Aaron. Now, I'll just give you a little glimpse. Aaron... That those funds, the sheep and all that stuff, passed on to all the Levites in the local villages, and then some of it gets passed up. And then, especially at the feasts, you're supposed to bring all the extra stuff uh, to them to refund things. You're never to come empty to the feasts, and you're supposed to jumpstart, give a boost to the social welfare system of God, which is operating entirely by charity. So you're not to come empty-handed. So that's why you're having these things. And then, now there's all kinds of it ends up in the hands of the high priest. Because he is the high priest, the priest, the priest, the priest, the priest. And 
the, the Levites are Levites, but they're picked, you know, ten people, pick a minister. Ten of those ministers, they pick another minister. Ten of those ministers pick another minister at those different levels. And so this is their hierarchy of service. Each one is picked because he's the better servant. He's a better judge of character. He's a better judge of what, how to differentiate empathy. When is it empathy and when is it going to weaken the poor? And so he's good at that. And so you keep picking them and picking them. And eventually they get up to the high priest and they give to the priest. And he has, he's got this coming in from 12 tribes. And if everybody's really giving, this could be a lot. But then he's going to waive this. He's got to do it openly. And, and he's going to have to waive it to all the priests. And the Levites are priests. They're performing, they are the priests of the people. Now, there are also priests in every family. You're supposed to be kings and priests in your own family. A lot of times the father is both king and priest. But, you know, when you get a bigger family, older family, and you get, you know, old grandpa like myself, and you get lots and lots of family members, you know, one of your sons may be a little bit more in line with being that priest mentality, and you will put him in charge of being the priest of the family, the redistribution of the wealth in the family. And until the father dies, he's the priest of that family. He's, you might call him the executor (laughs) of the will. He's going to redistribute the wealth of the family amongst all his siblings when father dies. Because he's the priest of the family. Because that's the job of the priest, is to redistribute the wealth that freely comes to him. And, you know, your your children should be tithing to their father. And, and giving to the father. And the father is the one who ties to the minister. You know, if you're a family group in a particular area. Because it's the eldest father in a family that is the elder. The young men are not the elders. They they may be heads of their own family, but if they're going to be an elder, they're the eldest father of a family, which includes all the sons, married sons, and unmarried daughters. That's the family. So anyway, that's how it works. But the important thing is, is that all this goes up to the high priest, and now the high priest is supposed to... He does... I mean, how many sheep can he eat in a year? <laughs> and you know how, how many cows can he eat in a year now if he, he just got you know he's got 12 tribes and all this is coming up if they're everybody's doing what they should be doing at the feast he has suddenly got tons of stuff and it becomes the property of the priest but what he's supposed to be doing with the wave offering is redistributed to the other priests and he, he looks over here, and the priests over here from the tribe of Benjamin, some of them have reported to me in conversations that, oh, they're having trouble. You know, they had a drought, they had whatever, a flood, and they need a little more assistance. So I'm going to give this, I'm going to wave this stuff to them, and I'm going to wave this grain to them. And, you know, there's an Indian tribe up here on the West Coast, and years ago they would, the, their chief, would accumulate all kinds of wealth because he was the chief. And there'd be several chiefs, actually, in the tribe. 
And so they would be, because they were somewhat wealthy, they would accumulate more and more wealth. And they would have more stuff than they knew what to do with. And they supposedly, and there might be a lot of different ways of doing this, but they supposedly had a deal where they had a big feast and they shared everything they had with everybody in the tribe. And they were all putting on this big feast. And they would actually bring things like canoes and stuff like that. And everybody had enough. Everybody got plenty. But, you know, they could only accumulate so much. They, they didn't have a... You know, they weren't expanding their bank accounts or anything. So, they actually had a fire where they would throw good stuff into the fire. To be honest, they would also make canoes that weren't so good, but they would throw them on the fire. But because it was symbolic of the fact that they were stripping away all their wealth. They were the absolute epitome of charity in their, in their tribe. And because they were this epitome of charity, everybody would give to them afterwards because they just gave everything away. And they would give to them because they knew that they would not covet these things and that they would share them with the people. They had a history of sharing. And so this is how they got there and secured their position by giving away, by showing themselves to be men of sacrifice for their tribe. You know, they would, they, they would get the best cuts and they would give them away to other people. Now there's a danger of that, that you give them away to your best friends, <laughs> to your cronies. And people are going to notice that. That's why it has to be public. So they know where you're giving it. They know whether you're just padding the pockets of your cronies. Or are you giving it where it goes back down to the people where it may be really needed, to the needy of society. So this is what their rituals were doing. But if you have skipped the idea that the altars and the burnt offerings and the drink offerings and the heave offerings and the the wave offerings are all just aspects of a social safety net to take care of the needy of society, to bind the people of society together with love, so that they hear that you lost your job at Walmart and that you got some sort of problem with your liver. They are anxious to come to your aid because they know that you have always been anxious to come to everybody else's aid. It's just like the Amish, when a guy's barn burns down, the most generous guy in the community who has a history of generosity, he's going to get the best barn of the whole community. It's going to happen. He's going to come. Everybody's going to want to put something into his barn because they know that he is generous to a fault. Now, we don't want to be generous to a fault because if we're generous to a fault, we're generous to the point of seeding our, her kids in her mother's milk. <laughs> we want to be generous to the point of strengthening the poor. Jordan, you know, he's told other stories about somebody who had, uh, was it multiple sclerosis? I don't know. He, he was very spastic in almost all of his limbs but his left foot. And uh, I think it was a book, My Left Foot, or something like that. But his father would not do things for him. He made him do everything for himself. The, other, the guy had no arms and legs. His father made him independent. 
made him learn to do stuff. Another another father who had a, a, a kid that definitely had a disability. And he put his son in a position where the son, you know, there were property held in trust, but the son had a job that he had to do to keep the business going. He had bookkeepers to do that because the son wasn't good at the bookkeeping. But he had some management that would, you know, keep it going. He even had a trustee to help the kid over the rough spot. But the kid was taken care of by the business because he had to work there. And he loved working there. It, It gave him a sense of purpose. See, that's what the devouring mother does. That's what you're... University professors do. They take away your purpose. Oh, you don't want to be a housewife and a mother. You want a career. There's no greater achievement of a real woman than to give birth and to raise a child. That is huge. That is huge. And, you know, that is natural. It gives them a sense of purpose. Now, they have to be willing to let go of that child and let that child, you know, we always said we're not raising kids, we're raising adults. God has given us his kids, but we're we're raising them to be adults. We're not raising them to remain kids. So we want them to take their responsibilities back. And and Jordan has mentioned in the past, I've heard him say it, uh, and, and it's a rule, I worked at, my wife and I met working in a convalescent home. And one of the rules they have in a convalescent home is do not do anything for the people that they can do for themselves. And I've, I've seen the nurses' aides in there, some of them. They talk to the patients' baby talk. And, and they treat them like children. And they shouldn't do that. I, I mean, some of them resent that horribly. I mean, these are people that are, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. They've raised families, they've had jobs, they've been Marines, and now you're treating them like little children. Not the way to do it. I remember there was one lady, Charlotte, I've probably told this story before, but she used to, she didn't talk much, she used to be a teacher, she walked straight as an arrow, tremendous posture, very thin, slim lady, she would walk up and down the hallways, I think she was on the second floor, and she would walk up behind people who were just standing there not doing something or or maybe jibber-jabbering instead of doing their job. And she would take her bony little knuckles and suck them right in the back. <laughs> just whack them. And, uh, and she just did that now and then, just out of the blue. And everybody knew, watch out for Charlotte. And she wouldn't say anything, she'd just do that. And I knew about it and everything. And I had to go up there, something to do with diet and everything. I was a cook. And it was talking about what certain people needed and what, you know, coordinating things. And I was up there and I was talking to one of the nurses or nurses' aides or somebody. And then I, I was seeing them looking at me. And I knew Charlotte was walking in the hallway because it was broad daylight. And I'd, I'd never been socked by her. But, <laughs> but I all of a sudden looked at her eyes and... I saw her looking over my shoulder and I knew that, you know, her eyes are getting bigger and bigger all of a sudden. <laughs> and I turned around and there Charlotte was. She she had wound up. She had her fist back. 
she was about to give me a shot right in the back. <laughs> and I turned around and I said, you hit me, Charlotte, and I'll hit you so hard your whole family will fall down. <laughs> of course, I wasn't going to hit her. But the the nurse was just like panicked. She oh, don't threaten to hit the patient. Oh, no, no Charlotte, it's okay. He's not going to hit you and everything. Charlotte just got the biggest grin on her face and threw her arms around me and hugged me. She knew I wasn't going to hit her. <laughs> but I played the game. And I I caught her at her own game. She's just doing that for attention because everybody else is talking to her baby talk. I didn't talk to her baby talk. I talked to her like she was a grown-up. Like, you hit me, <laughs> you're not getting away with that. <laughs> and I held her accountable. I wasn't going to hit her so hard that her whole family fell down. But... She loved that, that I held her accountable. Kids will love it when you hold them accountable. They'll grump about it. Okay, now let's put this on a national basis. Because we're not dealing with a little family and a helicopter mom who is devouring her children. We are dealing with a lot of college professors. But we're doing it with a whole nation. You know, Newsom, what a... What a devouring mother Newsom is. I mean, he came to power promising that in eight years, I think it was eight years, he would end homelessness in California. That that's what he was going to do. And everybody, oh, we're going to eat that up. No, no, he didn't. He made it worse and worse and worse and worse. He's destroyed the state. And they keep electing him. Why do they keep electing him? Because they are, un, they have undifferentiating empathy. That's hard to say. <laughs> they all have the spirit of the devouring mother. And some of them actually think that they're women. Some of these men, they actually think they're women, but they're just, I mean, you, you watch the, the guys pretending to be women. I don't know any women that act like they act. Most of them. Some of them are actually can fool you a little bit. <laughs> Most of them, they can't fool anybody. And they certainly aren't acting like women. And they certainly aren't having children and taking care of those children. They're doing the absolute opposite of what a real woman would do. And they're an insult. And all these weak people that are allowing these people to do this destructive stuff to their children and their children's children... It's just horrible. And it is amazing Jordan has actually come out talking about it. But if Jordan doesn't get the rest of this, if he doesn't understand that if you do not have a social safety net based on faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty, what Christ was creating, what Moses was creating, you will not be free and the new world order will have their way with you. But all of those out there who are willing to repent, sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. Start creating that alternative. Start funding a system that is based on liberty. Because your public school systems are not based on liberty. They're based on force. Your health care systems are not based on liberty. They're based on force. They're, they're all covetous practices. And they have all made you merchandise. And turned you in to the bondage of Egypt. 
and become a snare. Because you made covenants with the people where you went and you waived your right to make choices over the gold in your pocket. You don't have that gold in your pocket. Now you're going to say, well, I'll go out and buy some gold. No. You don't have the status to be free because you don't own your labor. You don't own your land. Gold is just portable land. You don't own your children. They they want to make you think you do. Actually, a lot of people are waking up like, these are our kids. We get to do it. Well, you can go ahead and think that. But they're not done. They got more plans in mind. You better get on the side of the Lord and dedicate yourself to the way of the Lord. And this is what Moses came down and said. All those who are on the Lord's side, you come over here. And the Levites came out first. But the other guys, the other people, they had to consecrate themselves, dedicate themselves to the way of the Lord. And the way of the Lord is operating by faith, hope, and charity, creating a social safety net based on charity, free will choice, where the ministers are empowering the people and the ministers themselves are naked under their minister robes. They're naked. The people have to empower the minister. I can't. I can't assign a minister to your family. If I'm going to empower your family, your family has to pick the minister of your choice. And you have to empower that minister. And we explain all this in books that we have free online. And that's what you need to be doing. So, anyway, I never even got to the page of the Milk and Meat page. Uh, but, anyway, you, you can look it up at Prepare You Milk and Meat, which talks about these things. Eating milk and meat, and I go through some of the explanations that the, the people had, that, that supposedly by boiling the kid in its mother's milk, you could foretell the future. Some people say that. I don't really find any evidence of that. There may be some evidence of that. But it's probably somebody who wrote something like that. It's kind of like the Nicolaitans. That people say, well, the, what are the Nicolaitans? Or, uh, it has something to do with the Arabalum and... Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, somebody wrote about 150 A.D. That, uh, that there was a guy named Nicholas who was getting the people to fornicate and be promiscuous. And so that was the way of the Nicolaitans. It had something to do with fornication. Well, it did have something to do with fornication, but it's the same whoredom that we were talking about back there in Exodus 34. And I have a whole page on whoredom. I, I need to, I'm constantly expanding these things. But, uh, so that it gets clearer and clearer. But it all ties together. But there was nobody named Nicholas. Well, there probably was somebody named Nicholas. But that's not where it came from. Nicolaitan is the exact same word in the Greek that Balaam is in the Hebrew. Balaam means conquered people. Nicolaitan means conquered people. It tells you right in the Bible that these, these things are related. That that era of Balaam is the era of the Nicolaitans. And God hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So what are the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Social welfare system based on force. That that That's what conquers you. And how does it conquer you? You make a covenant with it. And then you give it, serve it. You give it something. And so does everybody else who makes a covenant with it. And this one purse where your money always go is into this treasury of 
based on this covenant into the central treasury. And then when you have a need, they bring you your free bread. And you eat of it. That's whoredom. That's whoredom. That's idolatry. Because you may get more benefits than you paid into. And in order to do that, you have to covet your neighbor's goods. Because that's what you're doing. You're taking away the right of your neighbor to freely choose to give welfare to the priests of his choice in hopes that they will redistribute that wealth in a way that will strengthen the poor and be a social safety net of society. In hope also that your neighbor will be there for you if you fall on hard times. Just had a neighbor got taken into the hospital. And suddenly he felt real sick. Because he doesn't eat right and he takes all kinds of medication and everything. But... You know, he's going to where he thinks his salvation is. But that's not the way it works. He has a he has a pastor that preaches to him. But he's not teaching him the gospel of the kingdom. He's not teaching them about not coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority, one over the other. That if you do that, it will make you merchandise. That if you eat at the table of those men who exercise authority... The, the table of rulers, as it says in Proverbs, you eat the dainties of rulers, which are deceitful meats. They're deceitful meats because they're a snare. And they will bring you back into the bondage, entangle you again in the yoke of bondage, which is where everybody is. But the good news is that if you repent, turn around your thinking, start seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You, you can find the salvation from the wicked snares of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I believe that. I can find a few other people who believe it. That would be a good thing. But anyway, so it's not anything about fortune telling. It's not anything about dietary mandates. And I even have a section there on religious rabbis who actually they get a little bit close to it. This is over the centuries. Many rabbis have gradually built more uh, restrictions around what they interpreted as a commandment to ensure that no one might accidentally transgress what they interpreted to be a law. And that transgression is that you mix milk and meat. It has nothing to do with milk and meat. But it is true that sheep recognize one another based mostly on scent. Uh, they do recognize one another based on sound. They they do hear voice uh, of their lamb. But it starts by scent before the lamb even says anything. They smell the lamb. They know it's their lamb. And, you know, if you mix the wrong lamb in with the wrong mother, and she might take it the first day, but the second day she'll start buttoning it around. you got to really fool her. I know a lot of tricks to fool them. <laughs> Because I've done this lots and lots of times. So you can't fool them. But the reality is, is they say that it's the scent. So if you, if you boil meat, you know, if you kill the kid so that you get more milk, that's why they kill kids. And they, you know, they, uh, so they kill the kid and they're gonna, if you boil meat in milk 
it can actually, the acidity that takes place, it can actually make it a little bit more tender. In some goats, that really helps. But you're not supposed to, they know that if you boil her milk and the meat of her kid in that milk, this is because they live with their sheep, it will awaken things. She will smell that kid. It will turn on hormones in her. And she will start bleeding and bagging that she smells her lamb, but she can't see it anywhere. And so they know that you don't do that. You don't boil that kid where the mother can smell it in, in the milk. Now, shepherds back then knew that. And so the metaphor was not wasted on them. They got it. They still boiled meat in milk to make it more digestible. <laughs> but they knew that the metaphor was is that you don't drown your children and your poor in the milk of human kindness of this welfare system. Because that's what they're talking about. Creating this welfare system based on charity. But you do not want to boil the citizens of your nation in too much indiscriminate charity. You have to hold them accountable, which is why one of the words that we'll look at eventually in our studies is also, you would, you'd be surprised what word it is, that they, it's mostly translated number, as in numbering things. But that's not what you'll see, and there's a lot of words like that, you, and we've gone over a lot of them, but I happened to just come across that in the last 48 hours, and so it was top of my mind, but the point is, is that the more you understand the principles of love and charity, of caring about one another, you only want to give them what will, you know, save them immediately now. But you want to regulate it so that they are strengthened by the charity that you give. Otherwise, you're boiling them in their mother's milk and you will debilitate them. Which is what we see all over the world. This is what Cloward and Piven, go look at our article in Cloward and Piven, we're doing by targeting the black community with this ridiculous charity coming from pharaohs like FDR and his New Deal or LBJ, who was the Tut Moses of his day <laughs> uh, with his great society. They were weakening the poor. They were boiling their hearts in the milk of what they called human kindness, but they were weakening them, and they destroyed their families. So, uh, there was a, another part in this same thing, which the Shiluk Haken, and I'm, I'm not going to do all my guttural, <laughs> uh, but basically that's what is the biblical teaching where it talks about I think that actually translates into sending of the nest. And I think it means sending away from the nest. If you're going to steal a bird's eggs, you know, feed your family or whatever. And, you know, because they didn't all have chickens (laughs) to get eggs from. But uh, you had to shoo them away from the nest so that they didn't see you steal the eggs. They just came back and the eggs are gone. If they see you steal the eggs, then they will... They will pine longer. If they just come back and the eggs are gone, they'll get over it and they'll lay new eggs. So, uh, you were supposed to shoo them away because it was unduly cruel to steal the eggs in front of the mother. 
and so they and they they have these teachings in in the in the cabal and places like that where you don't want to steal the and cause undue pain you you have to take the egg in order to feed your family but you don't want to cause undue pain to others well, of course, that would be nice if everybody who was forcing their neighbor to contribute to their free education and their free health care and, and taking care of their parents, if they would take on that same principle. Because they say, oh, but we're helping out so many of the poor people. But we're robbing all the people who are hard workers. And we're teaching people to be callous in their hearts and to fall prey to the Nicolaitans and the heir of Balaam. And, you know, go read our article if you didn't get it already. And then you'll understand that you are conquered people because you've been eating at the table of rulers and they have made you merchandise. But anyway, the promise of a long life, if you did this, shoo the bird away from the nest, uh, seems to be echoing the idea of a long life if you honor your father and your mother. You take care of your honor and your, uh, your father and your mother so that your days will be long upon the land. So it has an echo of that in it. But now how would that relate to it? Anyway, the Kabbalistic interpretation of the passage is that life comes first in the order of regarding death. So they add this to the idea of milk is also first in your diet. Now when you're born, you get to drink milk. And they also see life as light and representing represented by color white which would include the dairy. So it would need to be eaten first. And then meat would be eaten second. And, and you know, even though it might be only a couple minutes later, then you can, you can do that. You just can't have them on the same plate and touching the same silver. Because meat represents death. So they put it in this order of first life and then death. So milk first and then the meat. But this is symbolic, almost cultic in its ideas. So I, I, when I looked that up, I said, uh, there may be some mystical uh, approach there, but that's not why. So what is it? And we've already explained that. What is that? The other section is that why you're not supposed to put milk and meat in the same pot. So, you know, pepperoni pizzas are out. Uh, you know, <laughs> of course, a lot of pepperoni may be made from pork, so they're not eating it anyway. Hamburger pizzas are out because you can't be touching it. But the good news is hamburger pizzas are still in <laughs> because it doesn't have anything to do with milk and meat. It has to do with the way in which you operate your systems of charity. And so you have to have priests that actually and ministers who are actually understand that you are supposed to be the social welfare system of a free society. That's what they're supposed to be doing. They're not just reciting words in the Bible and not telling you what they mean. They're supposed to be showing you how to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that you love one another in actual ways that take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And and you have to actually do that. And, and so... You know, Paul even uses the analogy in 1 Corinthians 3, 2. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. So he's talked about human kindness and love and, and, you know, caring for one another. And he's, he's, he taken, he was the FEMA of his day for the Christians. 
the, the faith emergency ministry auxiliary where he's taking supplies when there's a dearth and everything. Church was doing that all the time. Rome was doing that, but the Christians would not eat at that table. Because they knew way back, you know, the Christians, especially those that were Jews, they knew in Exodus that in order to get the free bread of Rome, you had to make a covenant with Rome. You had to sacrifice at their temples annually and declare that Caesar, Augustus Caesar, was the son of God. Because that was one of his titles, son of God. They wouldn't do that. So they couldn't go get the free bread of Rome. So they had to create their alternative FEMA to take care of the needy of their society through faith, hope, and charity. That's what the Christians were doing. They were prosecuted by the Roman courts. We showed the actual court proceedings, or at least what we have of the court proceedings and the arguments that were made in North Africa at one of the trials because they practiced private religion. Practice taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. Somebody, somebody I know very closely, known them all their life, said, "I'm not really very religious." <laughs> yes, you are. Well, the 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 uh, atheist who interviewed me—that's up on our YouTube channel. You know, he says, he, and I said, "You are religious. You just have civil religion, public religion. You go to the government to get your free bread, your welfare." Take care of your parents. Give you health care. Now, I don't know how much he does that. But everybody's religious. Everybody has faith in something. Even the the absolute dyed-in-the-wool atheists, they believe in something. And they worship that which they believe in. The philosophy, the theology, whatever they want to call it. They believe in that. And if, if they say, well, I have none, I just eat what I want to eat and I do what I want to do and well that's their God. Self-pleasuring themselves. The problem is is that all these churches out there are no longer taking care of the Corbin of Christ. They're no longer being the ministers of God's kingdom. They are no longer they no longer have a daily ministration to take care of the needy of their society. And you're going to need that more than ever. Because the unrighteous mammon, the one that's collected by forced offerings, is going to fail. You may have to be friends with the unrighteous mammon today. And more likely, you know, it's, it's, you know, the guy who actually pays his taxes and pays what he owes and all that stuff. And, uh, but seeks the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. With every spare time, the overtime that we see with the Israelites when they're in the bondage of Egypt, paying their tally of bricks, but seeking the kingdom of God by beating their tally of bricks and taking care of the needs of their society and working. They had to work together because now all of a sudden they have to go and get straw. And like I, I pointed out early on is that, okay, in Goshen they could make these bricks because they had all the clay that's coming down the Nile River and getting deposited there on the delta. And so they could dredge that clay up. And so they had an abundant supply of clay constantly renewed by the floods. But they didn't have straw. They had some straw because they grew some wheat there on the delta. But they needed extra straw to produce all the bricks that they were producing. 
So they would go to the, the wheat fields that were more inland that were watered by the aqueduct system set up by the Roman government and they would get the straw from them. But, of course, that's a big, huge hassle. So the Roman government would bring straw to them and give them straw. Now, they probably had some sort of deal. Well, we give you this much straw and we're going to get this much bricks. But all of a sudden they said, we're not going to bring you any more straw. You're going to have to get the straw yourself, but you still got to give the same amount of bricks. So suddenly this is a huge burden on the Israelites. And the Pharaoh thinks, I got them now, boy. They're going to really cry into this. And of course they probably don't hear a lot of complainers complaining about it. But if you think more practically, they had to have wagons and donkeys now. They didn't have to have before. Probably a lot of wagons that they, you know, with wheels. They were making wheels. They had chariot wheels. Chariot wheels were a lot lighter weight. But now if you're going to be carrying bricks and taking them to market, you had to have pretty substantial ways of doing this. You're not going to carry those bricks all the way to some place where you need to build. You're going to have to deliver them. Well, now you've got a backhaul. You're going to have to backhaul straw. And, and you can take... You you might have to buy that straw. Well, if you make enough bricks, you can take that straw of bricks and you say, well, I'll bring you a hundred bricks in my cart and then you fill up my cart, stack to the top with straw. And then I'll go back and make more bricks. So they had to start doing that. And what did that mean? When they left Egypt, they had a bunch of semis. <laughs> they had a bunch of carts. They had a bunch of donkeys. They were mobile. They, if they, if the Pharaoh hadn't done that, they would not have likely been as mobile. Now I'm speculating, but it's the voice of experience. <laughs> so, understanding that is very important. So, milk, feasts, and tithing. That's the next section under that page. And if anybody has any questions about this and are reading that page and everything, because I talk in that section about civil religion, uh, was a snare. And there's links there to the other articles on civil religion and a snare. Because religion was the social safety net of society. And I have articles to religion and articles to social safety net of society. And so far I haven't seen Jordan Peterson's crowd figure that out. And it's a blind spot with Jews and Christians and Muslims alike. That And it's amazing because it says over and over again in the Testament not to eat with rulers who exercise authority one over the other. Jesus said it. Proverbs said it. Moses said it. Said it in Exodus 34. Don't make a covenant with them. Because you, you might end up serving them, whoring after their system, having a relationship with their system, their unrighteous mammon, and then eating of their offering. Because that will make you merchandise. It will curse your children. Done deal. So anyway, maybe if we understood the purpose and the function of the altars, feasts, and tithing, we might be able to accept the meaning of the metaphor or at least it may become clear to us. And that's what we've tried to do in today's show, which I have gone almost two hours now. 
I point out, there was another conversation on uh, that Sam Harris, while debating Jordan Peterson, about the value or even the evil in Scripture. You know, and I pointed out, you know, like it must say a hundred times. I could probably tell you that. I looked it up. If you went to my page on uh, Put to Death, you'll see that uh, about a hundred times or more. I don't know how many times. It says put to death, put to death for this, put to death for that. But it doesn't actually mean that. And Ben Shapiro agreed with me. I was surprised. He was, and, and I had already got an inkling from um, Dennis Prager that he kind of saw that too. That there's really not any evidence that all this putting to death stuff was taking place. Is my contention that it never meant put to death. It it's more like it means they will surely die. They will be put to death. It's not you get to put them to death. They will put themselves to death by their choices. Like the the 3,000 who would not consecrate themselves to the camp. They're going in and out the gate. And I have a, you know, look up Levite Smite. <laughs> There's links on that page to it in 34. And, and also, I think I have the section in uh, Put to Death that covers the Levites is one of the explanations. They weren't killing those 3,000. They weren't slicing them up with swords. If they were, then those guys would be slicing some of the Levites up with swords. They weren't doing that. They were saying, you can't enter the camp. You can't be a part of what we're doing. you got to go find your own bread. you got to go somewhere else. It's no different than the foolish virgins. The guys who say, yeah, we want to be free and we see that these are all dictators and, and you know, and it's not constitutional and, uh, you know, you know, eight, what was it, 861 argument, you know, about income tax and all this stuff and, it, or the, the 16th Amendment never was, all these things. I looked at all those things when I was first writing the Covenants of the Gods. They're missing it. They're missing it because somebody hasn't been preaching the gospel. They don't know what the gospel really is. Maybe they're missing it because they don't really want to know what the gospel is. It's about taking back your responsibilities. Not only for yourself, but you know, the guy who was cleaning, couldn't, wouldn't clean his room, kept stepping over the vacuum cleaner because it was just too messy and he didn't, it was just overwhelming. That, I don't know where that guy went with it. Not only should he clean his room, but he needs to go down and vacuum his mom's room. <laughs> And when he's done there, he could go over to the neighbor's house and say, I'd like to vacuum your house. I'm, I'm really getting to like this vacuuming. <laughs> because that you have to become of service to others. You can't just get out of the system. Anybody telling you, oh, you get out of the system by filing these papers and everything. No, you get out of the system by getting the system out of you. Unless you want to spend 40 years in the desert wandering around eating manna. Chances are you're not going to get any man. <laughs> so, no, you have to start caring about others. And they started that during the plagues. They, they started that when they had to get straw. Because the, the government wasn't going to give them any more straw. So they're going to have to get it themselves. So if you're not working in that direction, you're not seeking the kingdom. If you're not working in the, the, the direction of creating a system based on faith, hope, and charity... You're not seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And if your ministers aren't helping you do that, they're not ministers of the church established by Jesus Christ. 
they're ministers of something, but it's not the church established by Jesus Christ. They tell me they believe. They can tell me that they love Jesus, that they believe in the blood of Jesus. But if they are not created an alternative to the system that has brought them back into the bondage of Egypt, then they're not even Christians, much less ministers of Christ. Now, that I know people don't want to hear that. I'm attacking their delusion. But uh, as Sam Harris would say, a goat is a goat is a goat. <laughs> Which is what I was going to get. Now, when he talks about the scripture, a goat is a goat is a goat. In the Bible, a goat is not always a goat. Boiling a kid in its mother's milk has nothing to do with a kid, which is a kid goat, nor does it have anything to do with milk. It has to do with the way in which you distribute the charity of the temple. Redistribute the wealth that is in the temple, in, in the whole temple, the whole temple, there was a little, there was a, a little tabernacle, little tiny tabernacle, 600,000 Israelites, you, you look at the size of the tabernacle, you can't get them in that tabernacle. They're not meeting there. Because that's just kind of a central point where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was everybody's tabernacle. That's why they talk about the tents, tabernacles of the congregation. The tabernacle of the congregation is everybody's tabernacle, everybody's tent, everybody's house. That's the tabernacle of the congregation. Which is why in 34, so we'll go back and we're just adding to what we talked about this morning. Was it, was it in 34? Was it in the earlier one? Maybe it was in the earlier one. I can't even remember now. Where they say, you know, where the... Yeah, it must have been earlier because it was what Jordan Peterson was talking about in their episode 13. Where, and they just skipped over it really quick. They, they just missed it in the thing. And we'll cover that. Hopefully we'll do YouTubes and everything and bring these all together. I'm just putting it together so that once, I don't have to be here to guide you through everything. It's all there if you want to see it. But it says they worshiped from, in their tents. They stayed in their tents and worshiped from the door of their tents. Because their tents, each individual man's tent, each individual man's house, each individual man's home is the tabernacle of the congregation. We'll call it, we'll put it in plural. The tabernacles of the congregation. Because each man's tent was his castle. And in each man's tent, he was priest and king. He decided what he was going to do with his wealth that he produced and his family. He decided it. 100% he decided it. Who he was going to tie it to, how much he was going to tie it to, when he was going to tie it to. It was his choice. Whatever he gave, we had to consider it paid in full. The only taxes they had was a little tiny half shekel. Which I used to think was like a half dime, but... I I kind of recalculated it. It might be like 40 cents. It's less than two quarters. (laughs) Once a year. Only for the man of the household, of the tabernacle, of his house. That's the only tax there was. And it really just is ante up to say, yeah, we're in. We're in on the deal. We're in on the program. We're, We're still dedicating ourselves each year to this system. But the system was a free will offering system. And so... 
that's what you need to be working for. And you don't have a lot of time to get there. Because the world, the, the unrighteous famine, will fail drastically. And, you know, even the Great Reset people that think they're going to control everything, they're going to fail too. Yeah, there's a lake of fire somebody, somewhere with their name on it. <laughs> but it doesn't matter what happens. I'm not, I'm not picking on them. You gotta remember that it's the it's the priests and the prophets of the unrighteous mammon that go to the lake of fire, whatever that means. The lake of fire may be just a whole lot of hot coals heaped upon their head <laughs> because that they're you know they're gonna be hiding in their lairs, uh, crying that the mountains fall on them because it will be so scary for them. But hopefully it won't be scary for you because you've already begun to approach the light. That's what you need to do is start approaching the light. Uh, but until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.